You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Schiffman. On this show, I interview people with lived and learned experiences on the subjects of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy, but occasionally we talk about other topics as well. This week's show features a conversation with author, lawyer, and addiction advocate Brian Cuban, but first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you just struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new beginning. You just struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you just struggle. And you can bounce back, yes, that's right. Come on and listen in to just struggle. You just struggle. You just struggle. You just struggle. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Welcome back. It's so great to be back with you all. Uh, I appreciate you all being understanding as I took a week off. LASIK went well. Uh, Well, the surgery part went well. The healing has been up and down. I feel fine. Everything is fine. Uh, I'm I'm just healing slower than they they want me to be. But, you know, uh, I will say I am... Loving this new reality that I can see without glasses or contacts for the first time since I was like five years old. Pretty amazing. Um, a couple other announcements before we get into this week's episode. There is only uh, about a month and a half left of this season. Just like season one, season two will come to an end in early November. In that time... Uh, This is something I have mentioned a little bit, but I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there because this is very, very exciting. Uh, I will be working on a different show. Uh, Well, actually, a couple different shows. So the first on this network, uh, hosted and and produced by me, will be the podcast Made It. Uh, Season one will focus on... Uh, an organization you all know and love, Savage Sisters. Essentially, the goal of Made It is to be a serial podcast, so perfect for binging, probably somewhere around five or six episodes, that will focus on people who have come through trauma, uh, they've come back and made it, so to speak, and then gone on to create something. Uh, so a little play on the word made it there, or the the, the term made it. So again, this the, the season one will focus on Sarah Laurel and Savage Sisters. Uh, outlining is underway, uh, and recording will start here in a couple weeks. So um, that will drop sometime early next year. So that's very exciting. Uh, also, I am very delighted to announce that I am joining uh, on the, the team of hosts for the New Books Network, uh, their show, Addiction Recovery and Drug Policy. Um, If you remember the episode with Emily Dufton, she's one of the hosts. And they the the conversation started to have me join that. And I'm very delighted to say I accepted. So uh, that will be starting soon. I will uh, obviously, you know, probably release some of that on on this uh, uh, stream as well to help you all learn about it and find it. But definitely go search for the New Book Network, New Books Network, excuse me, and find their show about addiction. Uh, 
I will be one of multiple hosts on there dropping my first episode probably, I'm going to guess, late October or November. Um, it, it, you know, there's the rotation, obviously, uh, but I'm already talking to a couple of amazing authors to try to profile their work on there. Also, and, and by the way, all of this news is available uh, if you go to my website, jshiffman.com, and sign up for the newsletter or the email. Um, this all went out as I'm recording this this morning. I'm recording this on Monday. And if you're not signed up there, please go do so. Uh, the made it information about that that show was not released there yet. I wanted to give you all a special sneak peek, but the rest of this has been announced there. Uh, the book is coming along. Uh, the, the merch is doing very well, so please go check that out. It's in the show notes, uh, so click wherever you're listening to this, or just go to my website, jshiftman.com, and go to the store page. The uh, tank tops, as always, you can buy from me. Everything else you will buy from the T Public store. Ryan has been knocking it out of the park, some incredible designs. I've had designers reach out to me and say, wow, your designer is doing a great job. Yes, he is. He's doing a wonderful job. Now, into this week's episode. Uh, this is a name that you should all know, Brian Cuban. Uh, if you're like, yeah, that sounds familiar, I wonder why. Well, his brother Mark is one of the most famous people on the planet. Uh, he himself is very well known in the addiction and drug policy space. He does some incredible advocacy work that I really admire, and you hear me say that on, on this a lot. Uh, here is his bio. Uh, Brian Cuban, besides being the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban, is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and person in long-term recovery. He's a graduate of Penn State and the University of Pittsburgh Law School, and he's the author of multiple books. His new one is coming out uh, soon. Um, it looks incredible. He is just a, a really incredible guy, very open very vulnerable, which you know, you know, we love here at the Choose Your Struggle podcast and everything that the Choose Your Struggle does. Uh, I, I think you're very much going to enjoy this conversation with Brian Cuban. I know I enjoyed uh, recording it. So without further ado, please, please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Brian Cuban. A quick shout out to my Patreon supporters. I am so grateful for your support and your love. Y'all have been with me since almost the beginning, and so much of this podcast could not be done without you. Almost to a person, they've all told me that they didn't join for the perks, although there are some pretty fantastic perks, but they've all joined just to support the show, and it really means so much to me. Now, if you join, you are going to get some stuff in return. You'll get sneak peeks, extra content, and the chance to interact with me on a second level. It's really a great way to show support if you love this show. So go ahead and check it out today. Go to patreon.com slash choose your struggle. The lowest tier is only $3.40 a month, and there's multiple tiers after that. There's something for everybody. So truly, I truly mean this. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters, and if you've been waiting to sign up, well, now's a great time. So head on over to Patreon and show a little bit of love. Choose your struggle. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review, or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Brian Cuban, and uh, I am a Dallas-based lawyer, originally from Pittsburgh. I am in long-term recovery from cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction, and bulimia as well, eating disorders, and exercise bulimia. Yes, guys do get uh, eating disorders. And I am uh, very involved in recovery advocacy, and I'm also an author. I've written several books, and I'm excited to be on the show. Well, Brian, it is an absolute honor to have you here. Uh, you, Your advocacy, I think, precedes you. I, I've been following your work for a number of years now. As, as we were talking about before you came on, you're very active on LinkedIn, which I love. I think those of us who do this work need to be more active there because uh, advocacy is sometimes ignored on LinkedIn. But that's not you at all. You are very, very active on LinkedIn. Yes, I am. And it's, it's funny. Uh, LinkedIn's interesting. Every now and then you'll get the the post or the message that this isn't appropriate for LinkedIn. Have you looked at my bio? (laughs) What does it say on my bio? What do you think I do? (laughs) Well, and and I got to say to echo that, because all of us who do this work have those messages on every platform, but you're right. LinkedIn is is even more so. And I got to say, I want to thank you before we really get into it, that seeing guys like you carrying this torch, I got to say, makes it easier and creates more space for the rest of us. So thank you. You're welcome. So now I think we'll, let's let's get one quick question out of the way, and then we can really get into your story. In your household, is it mandatory to be a Dallas Mavericks fan? Uh, yes, but I am anyways. Yes, for those who don't know, my brother's Mark Cuban owns the Mavericks. Yes, it's I don't know if it's mandatory because we're all just fans regardless, so it wouldn't matter. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm a I'm a big NBA guy, Celtics fans pre- predominantly. But you know, if you grew up, I'm 35, and if you grew up kind of in my generation, you had to be a Mavericks fan because of how unbelievably good those teams were. So it did make it a little bit easier. Yeah, in my generation, I'm a boomer. Growing up in Pittsburgh, they haven't they haven't had a pro basketball team since the early 70s. So you really weren't, uh, unless you were a college basketball fan, really weren't into it. So now you grew up in Pittsburgh, as you said. Uh, I'm in Philadelphia. You you have some some ties here in this area. Uh, now tell us, I guess, help us understand where uh, your particular struggle with substance misuse really began. Uh, it began. I mean, you have to. It, it began with a lot of childhood trauma that triggered uh, that eventually triggered me into uh, substance misuse, and uh, I was severely bullied as a child. I was fat shamed. Uh, I was physically assaulted over my weight. I was a heavy kid. Uh, I called the day of the gold pants. My brother Mark had given me a uh, pair of shiny gold bell bottom disco pants, believe it or not. This was the disco era of John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever and Mark even taught disco. And I love my brother and I wore these pants to school all the time, but they fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats back there trying to get out, but I didn't care because I love my brother and these were his symbol of, he loved me. And as you might imagine, the kids made fun of me and fat shamed me and teased me and it all accumulated, it all uh, came to a head one day. I was walking home from school with this group of kids about a mile from my house wearing these shiny gold bell bottom disco pants and they decided that I was too quote unquote fat to wear them. And they physically assaulted me, ripped the pants off me, tore them into shreds down to my foot of the loom tidy whities and my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt and my Keds, Keds tennis shoes and tube socks and uh, went on like they had done the funniest thing ever, high five, high-fiving each other. I went out in the street and I gathered up the shreds 
And I covered up my tidy whities and waddled home. People gawked, no one stopped. And I remember it was like it was yesterday. I walked down, we live in Mount Lebanon, a suburb of Pittsburgh. And we walked down, I walked down the stairs to base to the basement, these old wooden stairs. Now you're from Philly, you understand basements. Here in Texas, <laughs> you talk about a basement and people look like you're from, you're, you're from Mars. <laughs> we don't have basements here. So in these wooden stairs, I remember just creaked. And I thought with every creak, the whole world could, knew my shame and could feel my self-loathing and knew that I didn't know how to stand up for myself with bullies. And I put the shreds of these clothes in the bottom of a wastebasket, hoping it would hide all of my shame. But that's not how trauma works, right? Trauma remembers, trauma threads through life. And that event was so traumatic that uh, I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA, and show you exactly where it happened. So it started with that and uh, all the fat shaming. And when I got to Penn State, it uh, transitioned into an eating disorder, bulimia, uh, traditional binging and purging, and then exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. I was running 10 miles a day, 20 miles a day. And then uh, it transitioned into alcohol by my sophomore year at Penn State. And moving to the end of my sophomore year, I was a full-blown quote-unquote and I put it in air quotes because it's a label, not a diagnosis, right? Al I was a full-blown alcoholic, uh, alcohol use disorder. So I was uh, going out to the bars at Penn State, uh, already drunk, going to the state store and uh, buying my tequila and drinking the tequila in an alley at Penn State then going in the bars. And I would drink alone. I would go to class hungover, go to class drunk. And so... That really was the beginning. And uh, I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. I was a criminal justice major. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading up a baby laxative for the blow, believe me. And uh, I ended up going to law school, not because I wanted to be a lawyer, but because I had decided that three more years in school, I could uh, be alone with my dysfunction and the things that had gotten me through four years at Penn State, my drinking, my binging and purging, my running to be alone because I didn't think anyone loved me and everyone looked at me and thought I was a fat pig. And as you might imagine, that's not the recipe for a very, very good law school career. I was going to, I went to pit law. I was going to class drunk, hungover. Uh, I did my trial mood court drunk. Uh, sound familiar? Just like Penn State, rinse, wash, repeat, right? The behaviors that uh, got you there, you, you continue. Uh, and this was at a time when we weren't talking about mental health. This was in the uh, early to mid eighties. We weren't, there was no talk of mental health. There was no advocacy. It was exponentially more shameful than it is today. Uh, you were, there was no talk really of residential treatment. You were either in a hospital ward, you were in 12 step or you weren't in recovery. Right. A much different time. And uh, talking about depression or addiction really it was just not something you did because it was contagious, right? If you talked about it, you might catch it. Right. And so that transitioned into I moved to Dallas, Texas in 86 uh, because uh, my two brothers had moved there. And I felt that if I could move in with them, their love would uh, make me whole. And that is not how things work either. And then in the summer of 1987, uh, I discovered cocaine and cocaine and alcohol took over my life when I finally passed the bar after two failed attempts. Uh, as a practicing lawyer, and as you might imagine, I eventually lost my career. I was doing cocaine in the court, federal courthouse, the state courthouse. 
I was going to hearings under the influence of cocaine and Xanax. And you know how it is, right? You cocaine through the night and Xanax through the day. Sure. I remember I uh, I just popped I just popped a couple, and I was lying in bed, and I got called down for this hearing, this uh, ex parte hearing with this judge down at the Dallas County Courthouse. <laughs> I'm swerving all over the road trying to get down to this courthouse. I think it was droll coming out of my mouth. And uh, the judge fortunately just talked talked my way through the hearing and, uh, without really uh, noticing much. But And that really personified my life. Do you have time for a quick story for the real personification of my life? Please. Summer of uh, 2007. The okay. Dallas Mavericks are going to the NBA championship for uh, for the very first time. And as you might imagine, I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games, right? My brother owns the team. <laughs> I also had the opportunity to get a couple tickets for friends. I called up my brother, Mark. Sure, Bri, come on over and get the tickets. This is before uh, you really got them online and stuff, although Ticketmaster was a thing. So I went over and got the tickets. I didn't give them to my friends. And no, I didn't sell them on uh, t- eBay for some astronomical amount. I sold them. I, I I sold them to my cocaine dealer for scalpers' prices in cocaine. Wow! For two thousand dollars in cocaine. My dealer shows up at my house. I was high class. He delivered. He gives me the cocaine. I give him the tickets. I go running upstairs to my home office. I dump it out on my wooden desk in my home office, looking at this cocaine pile like I'm Scarface. I want to put my <laughs> face in it, and. Uh, Roll out the dollar bill, roll up the dollar bill. And, and cocaine users are, we're, we're an ironic bunch, right? We'll use, in pandemic times, we'll use a hand sanitizer, wash our hands, but we'll stick a dollar bill up our nose that's been used by God knows who and been has God knows what on it. And uh, But cocaine had long stopped giving me the feeling of self-love and acceptance that I achieved when I did it first in 1987. And it was just chasing the high, chasing the high. And uh, there was a lot of paranoia. Do I hear the cops outside? I go run into my window, check in the window. There's no one out there. But I'm so paranoid, okay, that I hide the cocaine. I drive to a Home Depot. I buy electrical faceplate outlets. I drill in a saw. I drive back to my house, go upstairs to the closets, to the drywall. Cut these fake electrical outlets put the cocaine in these smaller Ziploc baggies and hide it behind all these fake electrical outlets and close it back up. Thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the DEA, the cops, and the drug dogs have never thought of that before. So I do some more. I I roll some more out. And again, just pain and shame. And it was never maybe you have a problem, Brian. It was maybe I should change dealers. Maybe I need to change out the Grey Goose for the Jack Daniels. And the paranoia again. I go back to the electrical outlets. This is the same night. Take it all out, put it back in the giant Ziploc baggie, walk to the bathroom in my bedroom, the master bedroom, and flush it down the toilet. Now it's about $900 in cocaine. The next morning comes, I wake up. Did I flush $900 of cocaine down the toilet last night? Who does that? There's another game tonight. I'm such an idiot. I call up Mark again. I get two more tickets. Another call to my cocaine dealer. He shows up at my house. He looks at me and said, dude, you did all that last night? I didn't want to tell him I flushed it down the toilet like a moron. Yes, I did it all. Give me more. Okay, here you go. Rinse, wash, repeat. Back up to my office. Dump it out on the desk. Roll some more out. 
just chasing that high, more paranoia. I hide it again behind the electrical outlets. Uh, walk back to my bathroom later that night because I'm all paranoid and sh ashamed that I did this twice in a row. Drop to my knees like I had done so many times, praying or hoping for something or someone to just magically make me normal, to take it all away and flush it down the toilet again. They say when Dallas flushes, it runs downhill to Houston. So some people in Houston may have a little hop <laughs> in their step those two nights. What's the definition of an insanity? Doing the same thing over and over the same way right? and yeah. expecting a different result. But of course, we know addiction isn't quote unquote insane. Yeah. It, uh, it is a very real thing that has uh, traumatic underpinnings, environmental underpinnings, genetic underpinnings, so many different things. That was a microcosm of my life. So... Before we obviously turn the corner, a couple of questions about this period. First off, thank you so much for, for telling these stories. I think these are very relatable for a lot of people, sadly. Um, and, and and to hear it connected with something that is so, uh, I think, in, in influential in, in terms of the Mavericks, you know, being in the finals is just, it really helps people understand that this isn't one of those things that we like to believe it is that can't happen to me. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone. And it's, and, and, and for me, and I always, always speak anecdotally, right? Sure. I, the only thing I'm an expert in is my story. That's it. I'm an expert in nothing else. Well put. Uh, for me, it was, it, it's not like it. I mean, it's like I said in my, my, the addicted lawyer, did I know it was wrong? Sure. Did I know I shouldn't be treating, trading Mavericks tickets for cocaine? Of course I know. I've also been in jail, right? I mean, did I know all this stuff was wrong? Of course I knew. That's just not how it works. Uh, so I want to put you, but I want to, I want to ask a question that I asked when, whenever anyone can pinpoint a childhood trauma, like you've been able to do, do you believe that if you had had access to good mental health treatment at the time, it would have your story would have been different, or is this a thing that you think maybe influenced you or sped you along, but you were uh, heading in this direction? There's no way to know. I like to say I, it's hard for me to do revisionist recovery, sure. Because right? how can I go back and possibly know that? Can we talk about can we talk about uh, studies and we know that therapy works and things like that? Of course, it, it, it of course it could have influenced me in a different way. But uh, there are no genetics in my family. Uh, huh. None of my brothers or family parents have struggled. A lot of it, it was all a bunch of things coming together. I've always been very shy. I was classic middle child syndrome. Uh, I internalized anything and everything ever said negatively to me and ward is who I was. It was a confluence of factors. Remember, there's a huge difference between cause and correlation. Sure. Uh, so it's impossible for me to go back and say, can we say statistically and can we say empirically based on what we know about therapy and things like that? Sure, it could have. Now, and what we know I, about stigma. Of course. And, and, and I think to underline something there is that it's very important. We know so many factors when it comes to addiction, but we have no idea which in particular are more than, you know, it's more this, more that. And so I think it's really important that you make that distinction. I appreciate that. Now, when did, did your brothers, did your family know, you know, when you were in school, when you were practicing law that you were struggling, when did they no, figure because, this out? Uh, uh, well, well, when I was in college, I mean, Mark was uh, already living in, in Dallas. Uh, I didn't, I mean, after high school, right, every one of my two brothers, one went to uh, uh, 
Southwest Texas uh, University, another one in uh, San Marcos. Mark went to Indiana. So you're off doing your own sure. things. And uh, I, of course, didn't tell them. And then when it, it, and in Dallas, uh, when I moved to Dallas, I took a Greyhound bus uh, with $200 to my name, uh, Labor Day, 1986. Mark met me at the bus station. I moved in with Mark in his house. And this is the 80s. Mark's going out. Jeff's going out. He also in doubt. They're having a good time. Uh, they weren't doing drugs, to my knowledge. But you, I mean, you're just all going out and having a good time. No one's talking about these things. I wasn't, I had no self-awareness at that point that I had a problem. My self-awareness didn't come for two decades. Right. Right. I'm just out. Really, it was fun till it's not. Right. What we say about right. cocaine. Uh so no, there was uh, no one to tell at that point, because in my mind, it was just part of how I lived. Uh, but that all changed, certainly, in the summer of 2005, when I decided to end my life by suicide. And uh, a friend uh, who got a disturbing email from me uh, contacted my two brothers, and they came in my house. Uh, and had, I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was cocaine everywhere, Xanax everywhere, the usual and so everything came to a head at that point, and they took me on my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital, kicking and screaming. They're trying to save my life, and all I want is for them to get out of my life so I can go back to the people who truly judge, love me, and at least until the cocaine runs out. Uh, so uh, that's when it all came to a head in the summer of 2005. Because until that point, I was really only hanging out with a certain clique of people, right? Sure. I wasn't putting it in front of them. Although there is a funny story, I'll tell you. Uh, when was it? I forget the date, but it was, there was a there was a bar that I used to go to and do blow at all the time. It was called the Ghost Bar in Dallas. There was also one in Las Vegas, and it was the top of top of this hotel right across the street from the American Airlines Center. So I'd go down there. They had this elevator. I knew the cop, and it was just like to the bathroom out to the bathroom out. And there was at the soft opening of this bar, they had I want to say it was Van Halen. Uh, playing. I want to say it was Van Halen. And I was sitting at a table with my brother, my father, and uh, guys from Van Halen. I think what Eddie Van Halen might have been there. And the uh, guys, the owners of uh, the one of the Maloof brothers from the Ghost Bar in Vegas. And I reach into my pocket, and it was all this water bills. And I pull out money out of my pocket to tip the waitress, and a gram of cocaine falls right <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> and so I'm looking at it, looking if anyone sees it, and I slide my foot over to it, right next to my father. <laughs> so you're living back. dangerously at this I was time. This dangerously. Is, I don't yeah. know if anyone saw it, but I, I laugh at that story. <laughs> so yeah, that, that that's the way it was. And 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 you know, then we get to 2007 when you're you're trading the tickets, and I assume that Mark, you know, your family period may have known that you were still struggling, but not to the yes. extent that you were, right? Well, our distance, I, I backed away from my family. Uh, I wasn't seeing uh, my brothers as much. Uh, they were at the point where they're look, you don't want to. Uh, we love you, but you're a mess, and. Uh, and it was another story. I mean, another story is uh, I used to go to the Mavs games. This was before uh, when it was at Reunion Arena. And I sat right next to Mark on the floor. And uh, I showed up every game. I was coked up and I was drunk. And I, it got to be where I was an embarrassment. And he finally said, you can't sit here anymore. Because <laughs> I, I was an embarrassment, spilling my alcohol on people. And, and I was an embarrassment. I wasn't to myself and to Mark. And uh <laughs> And how did that feel for you, though? How how did you feel in that moment, knowing 
this is where I am? Or, or were you still in denial? A bit? Oh, I was still in denial. I was angry at my okay. brother. <laughs> I was still in denial. What are you talking about? Right. That's got to be tough. I mean, I've been there and, and yeah. I, you know, the last one to learn that you're struggling is yourself. Absolutely. And uh, Mark, I was working for Mark too. He put me after my, my legal career imploded because it gets around. Uh, and I was sure. kind of a quote unquote ambulance chaser, the title of my new book, <laughs> but I really was one. And, uh, you know, I was willing to do anything to uh, fund my cocaine habit, my very expensive cocaine habit and uh, ethical and not ethical. But uh, it's a miracle I stole my license. And I'm not saying that to be proud, but it was what it was, right? A lot of lawyers lose their licenses from drugs and alcohol. And I think that that it sort of takes us to you're you're at this point where that a lot of us who struggle and I certainly was at this point for about a year, year and a half, where either you get better or it doesn't matter anymore because you're no longer with us. So what was your turning point? That was what uh, my turning point would have been Easter weekend, 2007. I had uh, started dating a woman named Amanda. We had met at a bar, but she had, she was a very social, uh, very light, light, light social drinker. Just happened to be there. And when I met her, I was coked out of my mind and must have put on a good face. And we actually moved in together and she knew nothing about my issues. Nothing. How? I know. And I remember I was pretty good at hiding, but you know how it is. As things get closer to just the point of no return, you lose the really lose the ability right. to wear those masks, right? Right. The mask of the respectable lawyer, the mask of the respectable person, and uh, and uh, at least as I saw myself, right. And so I was getting to that point, and so she moved in with me, and then she'd only lived with me a couple of weeks, and she went away Easter weekend, and I went out to the ghost bar. The next thing I knew was two days later, it was Sunday. She's looking down at me in bed. It's mid-afternoon. There was cocaine everywhere. There was Xanax. There was alcohol. I had had a almost two-day blackout. Wow. And I didn't know where, what, is it Friday? <laughs> what, what happened? And uh, she's a lawyer. She's probably thinking, did I walk into the right house? <laughs> and as my mind gets a hold of things, I'm trying to think of what lie I can tell to explain this law and order style orgy of evidence that I just might not be the person I represented myself to be. All I could think of yeah, was uh, kind of running home to the metaphorical mama. I said, take me back to this psychiatric hospital. You've been to a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, well, you don't know that either, but we'll talk about that later. That's Because I, I needed to buy time to think of a lie. Right. Uh, and there was no lie you can tell to, to, to get out of this one. So we're in the parking lot waiting for intake for my second time. And uh, a few things occurred to me. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back. I was, I'd be dead. Two, she would leave me. She was going to leave. I'd leave. She didn't leave. She stood by me. And we dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And we've been now been married going on five years. Well, five years and coming up. Congratulations. So That's amazing. Not, not all relationships will survive those things, but I was able yeah. to. One, she's a saint. But two, I had to do the work for me, right? I couldn't do it for her. Uh, I couldn't do it for my parents, for my father or forever. Because, right, people do leave. Parents pass. Uh, pets die. Trauma happens. and and there all can be triggers. So it had to be for me. That's such a beautiful point. 
and 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 that's such an important point to make to anybody listening we 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 fall into these uh sort of this belief that well i can do this for this person i can do this and and the fact is as i had a former guest on here say he got into recovery for his mother his mother passed away and three weeks later he would had fallen apart that's right now what I like to tell people, there's a big difference between motivational triggers to empty recovery, to enter recovery, which is fine, right? You can do it for your, I did it because, you know, I I, I did it a lot because I felt I had to show my family I was doing something. Sure. I didn't want to lose my family. But that's not what sustains it in right. my mind, right? I mean, right. fear can trigger you into recovery, uh, uh, any number of things. And whatever gets, you, whatever gets you to take that first step is not necessarily a bad thing, but that is a big difference from what sustains the long term. Well, before we get into the advocacy, the books and all that, let's pause. And if you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can follow you online, buy your books and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, you can follow me my, on Cuban on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Cuban 61 I'm even on TikTok. It's Brian Cuban. Uh, <laughs> my latest book, uh, the, uh, the Ambulance Chaser, which is fiction, uh, is available right now on Amazon. It's about a... Uh, lawyer, a personal injury lawyer who is accused of the uh, murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior and has to uh, become a fugitive from justice to find the person that can save his life, that can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. And you can also find The Addicted Lawyer, which is my memoir on Amazon. The Choose Your Struggle podcast has been so lucky to have numerous truly change-making authors on this show. From Adi Jaffe to Emily Dufton, we have been blessed by hearing them speak, and now it's time to grab their works. Now, you could go to Amazon if you wanted to shop online, but let's be honest, that's not the right choice. So I'm going to invite you to head over to my partner, Bookshop. If you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS you're going to find all of your favorite books and you're going to support the podcast in the process. But that's not even the best part. Bookshop has an incredible program that allows you to select your favorite mom and pop or neighborhood bookstore and they will give them some of the proceeds from your order. Now, living here in Philly, that's been a really hard choice because we have fantastic bookstores all over. But I selected Harriet, which is a truly wonderful black owned bookstore in northern philly i love it my wife loves it we go there as much as we can honestly why would you go anywhere else so again go check out bookshop at bookshop.org shop cys you're gonna find the book you're looking for you're gonna support your neighborhood bookstore and you're gonna support the podcast in the process so check it out today and go ahead and buy that book you've been waiting for Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn, and choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, uh, thank you for 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 all of that. I'm. I, I think it's very cool that you you've sort of gone both directions. You've written the memoir and uh, this this what sounds like a very fascinating uh, fiction book, but. I think one of the, personally at least, the thing that I know of you the most is your advocacy work. 
and you are very open about your experience and about uh, issues that you have, I think, correctly so identified that we are just not doing well as a society you know, when it comes to, to thinking about drug use and, and, and uh, addiction and recovery. I ask this for anybody like yourself and, and me who, who has come through this and instead of simply deciding that healing is, is the thing they want to focus on, which is very important, I don't want to minimize that, but has decided to give back, where does that motivation for, uh, come from for you? It comes from the knowledge that uh, I have the ability, and we all do, to influence one person that might not otherwise be alive if not for that influence. And you never know what people are going to take from your message. To give you an example, when I first started public speaking, uh, I I practiced by speaking at uh, Rotary Clubs, right? You can go in, you tell your story, and uh, you can can work on your skills, and you get a free lunch or breakfast. And at that time, I was really speaking about just about eating disorders and body image issues, my first book, Shattered Image. And I walk into my very first Rotary Club, talk. And it's a bunch of these now 60 year old people like me, but then I, well, I wasn't 60 years old. And I'm thinking, my goodness, is this going to be a tough audience talking about <laughs> eating disorders. So I give my talk and I go back and I open up Twitter. And there was a tweet from this young girl who I didn't know. It said, you don't know me, Brian, but my father was at your talk today. And we were having dinner for the first time in a year. Thank you. The father, all the father grabbed onto for my, uh, what he grabbed onto was my talk about family and my relation, how my relationship with family was important in saving my life. So you just never know what's going to what what's going to resonate pe- with people through their life uh, through their life at lens. And I get emails all the time from people who have walk, who have walked or tr- at least trying to walk a different path. That's what matters to me, right? I'm Jewish, and there's a saying called, it's a Kabbalistic saying called tikkun olam, changing the world with acts of kindness. And I just want to change my little corner of the world and influence one person with one act of kindness. And now if you take that a step further again, a Judaistic phrase, the door of the door, passing it down from generation to generation. You influence one person with your advocacy. They influence another person. They influence another person. I I, just, I couldn't have said it better myself. And that's a beautiful story, by the way. And I think that we all, those of us who do speak, we all have stories similar to that where it's just like, and that's what makes it all worth it, right? I mean, that's what makes all of this, uh, this, this life of service really, really meaningful. Yeah. Uh, so, so then the, 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 but the books are a different nature, I think. And, and, you know, you could be that guy who decided that his mission was just going to be getting his law degree back up and going. So what was that process like for you thinking through where you wanted your life and recovery to go? That's an interesting question. And it started with eating disorder, my eating disorder recovery. It was, it was maybe June, 2007, I want to say. It was just after I got sober. I was reading an article about a model, a Brazilian model by the name of Caroline Reston, who had died uh, from complications related to anorexia. And at that point, I was very uh, secretive about my eating disorder, very secretive. Uh, I didn't think anyone could understand. I didn't think any other guy got eating disorders. Very shameful. Uh, About 30% or more of all those who struggle with eating disorders are male, but only one in 10 will seek treatment. Very shameful. And, uh, and I started looking at the comments 
online, and they were from men, from guys. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm not alone. And then I wrote my first blog about it. I am in recovery from bulimia. And it's, uh, I transferred it from my old blog, and I think that blog is still up on my current blog at briancuban.com. And that is what began the ball rolling, began the journey, my eating disorder recovery. And that is what started dialogue with all these different people. And I began the thought process of, okay, I have the ability to influence posit positively. I have that ability. I don't know how many, but if it's just one, that's okay. I walk into a room and talk to 100 people. 99 of them say, go pound salt. One changes their life. Worth it. It was a success. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And, and it, 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 well, it, it's beautiful. And it's also very sad. I did not know the statistics about eating disorders. Yes. And that just cumulatively steamrolled that into my addiction recovery. Uh, I started back, it was about 2016. I started writing The Addicted Lawyer, which was about uh, my life that is focused solely on my life uh, dealing with addiction as a lawyer and what, you know, basically the story, the cumulative story leading up to that in my practice, in my law practice. And then uh, because I, I going through addiction, I party with a lot of lawyers and I saw what's, you know, the struggle we have because it is very stigmatized in the legal profession, right? We don't, we're not a profession that allows ourselves to be vulnerable and vulnerability yeah. is a linchpin of recovery. You have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. So I wrote that book and it took off within legal circles. And it's just been, uh, it, it, it's been a very fulfilling experience. And I've branched out in the other areas. Like I said, I'm an expert into nothing, but I pay attention to people who I consider experts, whether it's, uh, whether it's harm reduction, whether it's uh, views on legalization. I've been very interested in the views of Dr. Carl Hart, even though he gets very demonized. I've read his book. Uh, all of these different areas, whether I've been, uh, I get demonized for some of my 12 views on 12 stuff, even though that's where I got sober and it, and it saved my life. Uh, uh, abstinence had to be my path. I was given no other option, but abstinence or sure. uh, treatment. I didn't know about anything else. And so, uh, but I've tried to broaden my mind in doing so, right? You uh, come up against a lot of resistance within the recovery community. That's that's true. And and we are a, a community that unfortunately loves to bicker amongst ourselves more than the outside world sometimes. Uh, I too am a huge, huge fan of Carl Hart. And I have to, to applaud you that I think that one of the things that is interesting, your your particular slice of recovery is that you've been very uh, a very big advocate for for medical marijuana use in, in the community or, or overall period as a person in recovery who is not sober and is uses medical marijuana I, I have to thank you for that sure sure and I've, i mean it's just we we get too caught up in terms and traditions and, and all of these different things and uh instead of stay alive right. hit the pillars of recovery right hit the pillar your family your work your children how does that look stay alive. What does recovery mean to you? It's not my place to tell you what recovery means to me, unless you're asking me about my path. What, what does it mean to you? How does your life look? Uh, you tell me. I, it's not my place to tell you. And there are too many people trying to force their view square peg. They're, 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 you know, they're, 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 they're squares and get, and get all the round pegs in their squares when it, that's not our place. 
So this is something I ask a lot of people in this space who, like you, think think more, I guess, progressively on this. Do you think we're heading in a direction where it is more accepting of recovery by, you know, your personal means or, or, or what are you seeing in that regard? I think it's going to be generational. Uh, I think, you know, you, you hate to speak morbidly, but I think it's going to be generational uh, turnover. Uh Right now, we have the boomers, the 12 step boomers probably aren't all that, uh, probably in the very minority of uh, 12 step boomers who, uh, you know, think Dr. Carl Hart has some good ideas. <laughs> but uh, you get down through millennials, you get a little more progressive, you get down generation, uh, as, as a Z behind that, a little more progressive. As people become more sharing and open minded, sure, I think it will change. Do I think it will change in my lifetime? No. So, What's next for for you? Where what what is coming down that you're excited about? What should we all be keeping an eye out for for your work? For my work, uh, I'm very excited about uh, my uh, my debut novel, The Ambulance Chaser, and the protagonist Jason Feldman is a lot like I was. He's a lawyer who is struggling with childhood demons, with addiction, uh, has an estranged son, and is put in a circumstance where. Uh, he has to take charge of his life to uh, make things happen and save his life and save his son's life. So there is, I've never killed anyone. <laughs> so don't think, but there is a lot of me in the protagonist, Jason Feldman, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, so I hope you'll check it out. It's open for pre-order on amazon.com. And I'll just continue my advocacy. I uh, do zoom. I speak at uh, open speaker meetings on zoom for 12 step, uh, Whatever people ask me to do, I try to do it. Uh, obviously, uh, I don't do as much public speaking as I did pre-pandemic because right. the speaking industry, especially the keynote industry, just yeah. died, just died. But I, I do a lot of law firms and I do a lot of recovery events. It's just uh, right now it's just not, you know, things aren't good for anyone in terms of that. And I, and I also, I do a lot of, I think it's also important before we, leave this. And I, I want to address privilege. You said things I want to address. I think it's important to acknowledge that I went through addiction and recovery with tons and tons of privilege, skin color privilege, financial privilege, the privilege of a brother who loves me dearly and is a billionaire. I mean, I have a combination of privilege that 99.999999% of the people do not have who are going through addiction. And I would be so intellectually dishonest not to not to acknowledge that we talk about discrimination and addiction doesn't discriminate and recovery well when you look at its, its impact right how it impacts different communities it kind of does right it impacts communities of color communities of broken families it, it impacts different communities much different can anyone can anyone uh be afflicted, of course, right? Whether you have privilege or don't have privilege. But when we, how it looks like how it impacts communities, it does kind of discriminate depending on how you want to use the term. I have people who get on that because they try to get very clinical with the definition of discrimination. But if we just take a broader view of it, it really does. And I'm not trying to short shrift that to anyone. I acknowledge my privilege and uh, that uh, I had it to take advantage of. Now I didn't take advantage of it, but I did have it if I wanted it. That is beautifully said. Thank you for that. I, I, I think that that is an important point that we always need to acknowledge uh, uh, those of us in recovery that not all of us are able to walk the same path to get there. 
Uh, some of us, like you and me, had it much uh, had had things available to us that that most people don't. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for making that point. So. Uh, before we go into the final couple of questions, one more time, if you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can find you online, buy the books and all that kind of stuff. Sure. You can find me predominantly on Twitter at BCuban. I'm also very active at LinkedIn, just Brian Cuban. I post a lot of cat pictures on Instagram, but also motivational stuff. Uh, my brother said in a Shark Tank episode uh, that somebody was pitching a cat thing that I post more cat pictures of anyone on Instagram. <laughs> but I don't think he took the deal. Uh, and you can find me on TikTok, you know, the normal places. But and then you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just put my name in. Uh, the Addicted Lawyer is my memoir. And The Ambulance Chaser is my up and coming uh, my up and coming novel. It's a legal thriller. I hope you'll check that out. Well, and I, of course, will put all the links in the show notes as well as the links to uh, where you can buy the books. I use bookshop.com as one of the partners of this show, so I'll link it there. Um, now, we, we always finish with the same two questions, the first of which being not just during the pandemic, but, but always, what uh, self-care habits work for you? I'm very big into mindfulness uh, with, the with, with apologies to water conservationists. I take very long showers or I clear the mechanism and just try to uh, uh, be Zen, be, you know, with that, not, not allow all of the negative thoughts of the day to infiltrate and just get rid of them. And uh, because remember that over half the thoughts we have our day can be negative and not based in any uh, objective fact. So I try to clear my mind of all that. I exercise moderately and, uh, to keep uh, that's a big part of my mental health routine and i advocate advocating gives me such great joy to put it out there and just uh and just selfishly yes selfishly hear back from people who say you are having this influence on me so yes there is some selfishness there i it really helps my recovery when i get these messages I think that's beautiful. And I really want to underscore that, you know, not all mindfulness has to be selfless. There can be some some things that, as, as you said, that 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 are uh, both sort of an ego boost. And and I, I'm right there with you, man. So I appreciate that. Sure. And I mean, I have my I mean, my, my wife and I, my cats, I have my two cats. So I think pets are very helpful. And uh, I've always been a pet person. And so those are the things I do. It's not complicated. I don't have this. Uh, uh, complicated uh, recovery routine and and, and meetings. Uh, I'm a I'm a 12 step guy. I uh, I haven't been to an in person meeting in a while because of the pandemic. But uh, that's just my path. Again, I I stress whatever your path is, do that. If standing on your head is your is your path. Stand on your head. Love it. So the final question we, we always ask is we've now spent the last almost 45 minutes hearing why you're amazing. We should be following all your work. But who are some other people that you want to shout out? What are you listening to, watching, reading, anything like that? Uh, there are there are amazing advocates out there. Uh, Ryan Hampton, uh, I'm a big fan of. Again, Dr. Carl Hart, uh, whether, you, whether you agree or disagree, he has uh, an idea never, an idea didn't ki won't kill you, right? An idea you don't agree with won't kill you. Uh, no one ever died from just that. Uh, I, then, uh, man, Ryan Marino, on, on, uh, sure. who debunks fentanyl myths, is, is, is someone I pay a lot of attention to. And so there's, uh, in my, my, obviously, my wife, my brother Mark, who are all uh, instrumental, and my brother Jeff, very instrumental in my recovery, their love and support. 
I, I think that's wonderful. Yes, all of those you shouted out in the recovery community are fantastic. I, I underscore all of them. All right, quick final question before we let you go. Uh, how are they? How are the Mavericks going to do this year? We're going to be competitive. I mean, there are no the, the NBA is like every year. Who's healthy, yeah. right? Yeah. So we'll be competitive. We'll be in the mix. And when you get to the end of the season, it's about injuries. Who's healthy? Who's not? Well, if if my Celtics can make the run, we'll see you guys in the finals. That that could be fun. I'll reach out to you. I hope so. Thank you. I mean, we're just, what, almost just over two weeks away from training. Wow. Where the time That's right. I mean, such a short off season with the pandemic delay. It's uh, I'm looking forward to it. Big, big NBA guys. So uh, Brian, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure talking to you today. And I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. It's been an honor for me to be on. I am truly appreciative that you asked me. Hey y'all. It's me, your host. I'm sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a fantastic episode of the podcast, but I have to give a quick shout out to my partner, Roadrunner CBD. They have been working with me for a while now, and I just love their products. They have everything from tinctures to muscle gels, and all of them are fantastic. You know, I rub the muscle gel on my legs before I run, and they keep me feeling pretty good, which is saying something. So check out Roadrunner today at their website, www.roadrunnercbd.com slash ref, R-E-F slash C-Y-S. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash C-Y-S. And use the code C-Y-S at checkout to let them know that I sent you and get 10% off. Trust me, you're going to love this. I've sent some of their products to a couple different people, and they've all become repeat customers. So check it out today and don't forget to let them know that Choose Your Struggle sent you. Subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash choose your struggle. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode and listening to this fantastic conversation with Brian Cuban. I greatly appreciated him taking the time. You know, when you think of the Cuban family, uh, Mark is is a very interesting guy and, and is known for a lot of different things. But uh, you know, Brian clearly showed today that that he is a force in his own right. And, and I don't think that anyone could say after hearing this conversation that Brian Cuban is in his brother's shadow. Uh, you know, he is leading the charge in this in this uh, community. And, and I really appreciate all that he does. I, I flattered him a couple times on the show, but I meant it. You know, I really uh, I follow his advocacy very closely because I'm such a big fan and I co-sign so much of what he says. And, and I am just so appreciative of him for being so vulnerable and open. So so thank you so much to uh, Brian Cuban. It really was a, an honor to chat with him. Uh, today's card, we're going to use the 54 Ways to Ease the Anxious Mind card pack from Blurt. Thank you, Blurt, as always. Those are the cards. Here it is. Pop on some noise-canceling headphones. Great tip. 
Shout out to Ryan, choose your strategy, <laughs> choose your struggles strategist. He could be choose your strategist. That's fine. Uh, that's one of his self-care habits. He told me about not necessarily the noise canceling, but popping on some headphones, throwing on some music. Um, we've got something in the works, something fun that I'll talk about in a future episode that he's going to be working on. And, and this directly relates to that. So yes, uh, you know, they don't have to be noise canceling, just pop in some headphones. I just got back before I recorded this from taking a little stroll. I started raining and I was listening to tank and the bangas and it wasn't a heavy rain. It was just sort of a, a light spritz and it was pretty pretty wonderful. Uh, it was really nice just walking around the city, seeing everything going on in a light rain, listening to some pretty incredible music. Shout out to Tank and the Bangas, big, big fan. Uh, so yes, uh, that is a wonderful tip. Uh, throw on some headphones, maybe noise canceling, control what you're hearing and, and feed your brain something happy. Uh, and, and sort of going off that on the senses, your good egg for today is going to be make your eyes happy. Now, okay, you're probably like, what? Um, but as I mentioned on the intro, you know, uh, that's why I was uh, didn't put out episodes uh, last Friday or Monday, because I was having LASIK surgery. I had that last week. Uh, and boy, I will tell you, um, it is it's already uh, I'm, I'm you know, a couple days in and it's really changing my life the way that I can see now. Um, this is something I'm 35 and I've been wearing glasses or contacts since I was five. Uh, and so, you know, I've just been really appreciating uh, some beautiful things around me, the beauty in the world for many reasons. But but this is one of them now that I can really see them, uh, which is pretty incredible. So do something to make your eyes happy this week. That's your good egg. But above all else, as always, <laughs> be vulnerable. Show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle.